morning. Um, we're going to have our Bible reading now. Um, and it's from 1 Timothy chapter 6, starting at verse 11. So I'll just give you a second to find that in the Bibles on the pews. Page 1,194. Okay, starting at verse 11. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. In the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Jesus Christ, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see. To him be honour and might forever. Amen. Command those who are rich in this present world not to be arrogant, nor to put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. Command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age, so they may take hold of the life that is truly life. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed, and in doing so, and in so doing, have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. Thank you very much, Lani. Well, uh, my prayer and expectation for any uh, preaching series in the Bible is that it will change us. Uh, we will actually end our time in this part of the Bible in a different place as a church to how we began. That is the power of God's word, isn't it? That's what we should expect, isn't it? Uh, otherwise, why bother? Um, we don't open the Bible just to sort of uh, find information. Uh, the idea is that it will change us. And you might want to think back if you've been here for uh, this series or, or mo most of it. Um, what is the big lesson of 1 Timothy? What, what has changed in our thinking? Uh, well, let me suggest uh, this for starters. I think it should be this. The lasting lesson is a fresh appreciation of the ordinary local church as a display of God's glory to the watching world. A fresh appreciation of the ordinary local church as a display of God's glory to the watching world. This is what we've seen is our privilege and mission to offer the world a kind of a, a carpet sample, a little taster of the world to come. 
And therefore, the challenge of the letter is pretty obvious, isn't it? If that is the theme of the letter, the challenge of the letter is, how are we doing? How are we doing? Are we living in such a way that is providing that sample of the world to come, the God's order? Are we living in such a way that is worth noticing? Are we a community of hope in a world of hopelessness? I think we need to be, don't we? I read this week that one in four teenagers have experienced suicidal thoughts. And so that tells us something, doesn't it, about the society in which we live. We are in a hopeless world, and we are to be a community of hope in such a world. Is it possible for a visitor to come and be among us and leave and say there's nothing particularly happening there? Are we a church, as we said in the first week, I think, tingling and reverberating with the gospel of Jesus Christ? That's... The theme of 1 Timothy, a fresh appreciation of the ordinary local church as a display of God's glory to the watching world, and the challenge of 1 Timothy, how are we doing at it? How are we doing? Well, that's what we've seen so far, but as we come this morning to Paul's closing words, we face two dangers of missing the real point. You'll see I've put that on the sheet, two dangers of missing the point. First is the nagging thought that I mentioned last week that the matters Paul raises at the end of the letter are not his central concerns, but are more of a postscript or an afterthought. And if they are a postscript or an afterthought, then by definition, they are not central concerns, are they? They are just that, an afterthought, a postscript. And if they're not central concerns, then that means as we come to the end of the letter, we can actually just chill out a little bit, can't we? Um, a little bit like the, you know, the terms and conditions at the end of the Spotify advert. We don't need to listen to those. This is not for us. We can sort of chill as Paul just deals with a few bits of business. Now, the temptation to think this way is especially strong, isn't it, when we get to verse 17. Have a look at verse 17. Notice the, uh, the NIV has given us a particularly large paragraph break there as if to underline this. Verses 11 to 16 read very much like a climax, don't they? as if this is the conclusion, and Paul is building to this great doxology, this great praise of God, and that word, amen, that is surely the ending. And then what's verse 17 doing there? Takes us by surprise, isn't it? As if he suddenly remembers something. Oh, I've just forgotten to mention that thing I was meant to mention to the rich people. Have I got a little bit of space on the scroll? Picks up his pen and scribbles the final word. And you can imagine as the letter is being read, the rich people in the congregation, their hearts are sinking. They thought they got away with it. A little bit like if you remember the 1980s uh, detective series, Lieutenant Columbo, do you remember? Uh, if, you're, if, you're old enough, if you're not old enough to know Columbo, go and check it out on YouTube. You're in for a treat. Um, but as he was heading out the door, just as he was heading out the door, and the suspect thought they got away with it, I've just one more thing. Just one more thing, and it's always that thing that the suspect doesn't want to hear. So it can read like that, but we've learned to expect better from Paul, haven't we? In fact, this whole passage, 11 right through to 21, is a very carefully composed conclusion, which actually holds together as one piece. So let, me, let me show you how this, these bits of the passage lock together very deliberately. Few, uh, few examples. There are two opening charges, aren't there, in verse 11 and 17 that work in parallel. So in verse 11, Paul is addressing Timothy. In verse 17, he's addressing the rich. So he's got, he's got two things to say to two groups of people. And these 
two sections kind of work like stereo headphones because remember both Paul both both the church and Timothy are listening in. So the church are listening to what Paul says to Timothy. Timothy is listening to what he says to the church. And we're meant to hear them together like sort of stereo headphones. Notice also repeated the repeated expression, take hold of life. Very clear sort of repetition. Verse 12, Timothy is to take hold of eternal life. Verse 19, the wealthier to take hold of true life. Very clear repetition of that phrase, isn't it? And then I wonder if you notice, as Lani read, the repetition of the word good. How many, how many times does the word good appear? Well, verse 12, the good fight. Verse 12, the good confession. Verse 13, Jesus' good confession. Verse 18, doing good. Verse 18, good deeds. And then verse 19, is the firm foundation is literally the good foundation. So six times the word good, three times in each of those halves. And then there is God. And what do we learn about God in this passage? He's all-encompassing provision. Verse 13, he gives life to everything. Verse 17, he provides everything for our enjoyment. So another kind of thing that links the the parts together. And I think most most striking of all is that each part emphasizes the future. Look at verse 12, eternal life. Verse 14, the appearing of Jesus. Verse 17, hope. Verse 19, treasure in the coming age. So the passage is very, very clearly future-looking. And you can see then that all of those things lock the passage together. Far from being an afterthought, far from being a PS, this is actually Paul's very deliberate conclusion to the letter. And if it is the conclusion, then we can expect it to reinforce the lesson of the letter one more time. And do you know what that means? It means if you're here for the first time this morning... You're very, very welcome. And it means that you have not missed the lesson of 1 Timothy. Here is the lesson of 1 Timothy coming up. And it also means if you've been here for all 11 weeks of 1 Timothy, we haven't quite learned the lesson yet. Paul has more to teach us. That's the first danger, the danger of assuming it's a postscript. But there's another danger for us in missing the point this morning. And this is a little bit more personal, and it's When we come to verse 17, and he says, command the rich in this present world, the temptation for us is is to look over our shoulder, isn't it? And to think, well, who, who is he talking about? He is obviously talking about somebody else. And I think that's always a temptation when the Bible addresses the rich, that we always think he's talking about somebody else. Because, of course, unless you are, who is it now? Jeff Bezos, the Amazon guy, unless you are the richest, there is always somebody else higher than you. There is always somebody else you can look at and say, well, the Bible isn't talking about me, it's talking about somebody else. But I promise you, if you could get inside their head, I promise you, they are also thinking there is somebody richer than me. Everybody, when they hear the Bible address the rich, is looking over their shoulder to see who is actually being addressed. Well, how do you feel? Do you feel rich? Do you think you're rich? Now, I know that in a group like this, there'll be, there'll be mixed reactions to that, won't there? Some of us don't feel rich right now. Uh, there are debts. There is, there is inflation. There are bills to pay. There are burdens. There are anxieties. We are feeling the squeeze. 
But the answer to the question whether you feel rich is, is partly a kind of historical one, isn't it? It's partly a matter of historical perspective and global perspective. Because actually, when you think about it, most of us in this room right now, globally, historically, relatively, are either rich or we've got the potential to be in the future. So it's not just money in the bank, is it? It's assets, it's homes, it's opportunities, it's skills, it's education, healthcare, welfare, inheritances to come, employment prospects, security. If you add all those things up, we are mostly here in this room in the top 5% of the world. Most of us are rich. And if you don't believe me, talk to somebody from another part of the world. Uh, go and grab Elias or Joyce Gazal afterwards, who just got back from Lebanon last week, where people are not so much concerned with gas prices, but whether the gas is actually going to come on uh, in the morning when you turn on the, the, the tap or whatever. And where inflation is not 6% where it is like it is here, but before Christmas was 144%. And so being wealthy is partly a mindset thing and a relative thing. And it depends how you view yourself. So somebody said to me this week, they were reflecting on this passage ahead of Sunday. It's a very good thing to do. And as they were, they were reflecting, they had an, a cup of coffee in an insulated, reusable coffee cup in their hand. And as they were reflecting on the passage, it suddenly struck them how most people in the world do not own an insulated, reusable coffee cup and never will do. How extraordinarily rich they felt to, to be the owner of a plastic coffee cup. It's a matter of perspective, isn't it? So if you want to know whether verse 17 applies to you, I'm not going to tell you. You have to decide, ultimately. But I suspect that most of us are, or at least have the prospects of being at some point, in the future, And therefore, bring those two things together. We must not miss what Paul says to us as he draws his letter to a close. But, having said all of that, this passage is much more than about money and wealth. Those things are important, but what we're going to see is that those things are an indicator of something much more important, something much bigger. The real purpose of this passage is to test us to see whether we have really grasped what life is all about in the light of eternity, is to test us to see which kingdom we are really living for. So let's get down to work, and you'll see three headings on the sheet. Firstly, what Timothy must do and why in 11 to 16. Paul begins by addressing Timothy with that very strong, but you, man of God. It's a contrast and very strong phrase. The man of God is taken from the Old Testament leaders like Moses, David, and Elijah. So man of God is not just a term for a Christian, it's a term for a leader of God's people. Now what does Paul want Timothy to think as he hears that? Well, remember those leaders. God used those leaders of the past particularly to steer his people away from dangers. The danger of Pharaoh danger of false prophets and the Philistines. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, man of God, now is your moment to lead God's people in the same way. He must lead the church in Ephesus away from the danger of false teaching and greed that we saw last week would be destroy them, would destroy them. But if he is to lead God's people, he must first lead himself. And that's what these verses are about. He must do three things. He must flee follow and fight. Firstly, he must flee. Verse 11, but you, man of God, 
flee from all this. What is all this? Well, I think it refers to the deadly love of money and greed of the false teachers that we saw last week. That worldview where gain was their religion. That is what Timothy must flee from. And notice he must flee. He must turn his back and he must run in the opposite direction. Yes, there is a time for discussion and dialogue and debate with different sorts of teaching, teaching that we disagree with, teaching that is wrong. Yes, there is a time for correcting error patiently and gently, but there is also a time to run in the opposite direction because there are personal dangers involved. Timothy is to flee. But having fled, he is to do something else. He is to pursue something else. Look at it. Verse 11, righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Now, whenever you see a list like this in the Bible, it's always tempting just to kind of skim over it. But maybe if you're in a growth group, this is a moment to pause. Think, why does Paul give us these particular six qualities? I think they're particularly chosen as the opposite qualities of the false teachers, and you could explore that. So those men of the world were pursuing visible and material gain, but the man of God is to pursue what is unseen, righteousness and godliness. He is to pursue the inner qualities of faith and love, and to do so will involve endurance and gentleness in his dealings with people. And so he is to flee the false teachers and their worldview, and he is to actively pursue the very opposite. He is to have a different game plan. He is to chase what matters to God and others. And so you can almost hear Jesus saying here, can't you? You cannot serve both God and money. You can't do it. You've got to flee and follow. You've got to choose which kingdom you are on. But he's not only to flee, he is to follow and he is to fight. Verse 12, fight the good fight of the faith. This takes us right back to chapter 1. Remember there is a spiritual battle going on, something Paul has not let us forget at any point through the letter, that there is an enemy, there is Satan, destroying the witness of the church, seeking to destroy the souls of believers, seeking particularly to destroy the souls and the faith of Christian leaders. And so Timothy must fight and struggle. And notice that is the normal Christian life, the struggle to make it to the end. Well, verse 12 makes sense of this. Have a look at it. Take hold. I think this is not a fourth thing he's to do. This is a sort of summary. Flee, follow, fight, so that, verse 12, you can take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. Now, this good confession is an unusual phrase. It causes a lot of debate in the commentaries, and it's not explicitly explained. It could be Timothy's moment of conversion. could be his moment of baptism. Some people think it's his moment of sort of ordination to ministry. Either way, his good confession is obviously pointing back, isn't it, to the beginning of his journey when he took hold of eternal life. Flee, follow, fight. Keep going in this Christian life. It is the basic struggle to keep being Christian, the daily struggle to make it to the end. Well, that's what Timothy must do. Well, now we come to that wonderful paragraph in 13 to 16, and we see why he is to do it. Here is the motivation for the struggle. Here is the motivation 
for the Christian life. And it's all about the future. Notice three things here. And we're going to go through this fairly carefully because it's a fairly dense uh, piece of writing. Firstly, notice what he says about God. Verse 13, in the sight of God who gives life to everything. That, if you think about it, is the basic truth with which the Bible begins. God gives life to everything. He is the creator and giver of every good gift of the material world, of bodily existence, of life itself. And that guards us from two mistakes, which we've seen in 1 Timothy. On the one hand, it guards us from that austerity gospel of chapter 4, verses 1 to 5, where some people had rejected the good things of creation and said, actually, you know, if, you, if you're going to be a Christian, you can't enjoy this world at all. Guards us against that mistake. God is the giver of everything, giver of life. On the other hand, it guards us against the worship of the material world because who is the giver of life? It's God. So we can enjoy the creation, giving thanks to God who gives it. We must not treat the creation as ultimate. It is good, but it's not God. So it guards us against those two things. But now look, about, look what Paul says about the God who gives us these things. Look at verse 15 very carefully. He calls him God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, who no one has seen or can see. To him be honor and might forever. Amen. Now those two verses draw that great fat line down reality and divides God from his creation completely. The God who has so generously given us the creation is not part of the creation. He is alone, verse 16. He is immortal. He is other, transcendent. And notice he is invisible. He is separate, so unimaginable. He's like a blinding light at the center of the universe, ruler of rulers, king of kings, lord of all. And so there's something of a tension, isn't there, there? That God is utterly magnificent. He fills the universe with his greatness. And yet, at the same time, he is invisible. He's, he's magnificent. Filling the universe with blinding light. And yet, he is invisible. And therefore, human beings can spend the whole of their lives missing God. We can live in God's creation, spending the whole of our lives ignoring him completely, like people sort of walking along with their eyes to the ground, not ever noticing the sun. But here's the next thing to notice. Notice that that invisibility will not last forever. The invisibility will not last forever. I charge you, verse 13, to keep this command, that is to take hold of eternal life, without spot or blame, until, until, the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. See, Timothy is to take hold of eternal life. He's to take hold of the promise of the gospel without spot or blame, that is, without swerving from that belief in the gospel, until a certain time comes. So that struggle, flee, follow, fight, the struggle of the Christian life is not going to continue forever. 
one day the end will come. Because one day what is invisible now will be made visible. That kingship of God that now we cannot see because it's over the line will now be made visible, will be made seen. And the moment it's going to happen, look at the moment it's going to happen, is what he calls the appearing of Jesus Christ, literally the epiphany of Jesus Christ. So history is going to end with a big reveal. The moment when the realities that we grasp now by faith are going to be made visible. When the curtain will be pulled back, history will come to an end, and no one will be able to live in this world and deny the reality of the majesty of God. And it's going to happen when Jesus returns. And so Paul is saying to Timothy, struggle on now. But there is a goal, there is an end, there isn't until. So firstly, God's majesty. Secondly, it's going to be revealed. Thirdly, notice the unusual sentence he slips in, in between. And of Christ Jesus, who while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. I think nothing sort of prepares you for that. It's unexpected. We've had Timothy's good confession. Now Jesus has got a good confession before Pontius Pilate. What is this? Well, what confession did Jesus make before Pontius Pilate? Well, I think the answer is in John 18, where Jesus is being tried. His life is on trial. He's about to be crucified. The crowds are baying for Jesus to be crucified. And Pilate, actually, if you remember, the Roman governor, is, is, is trying to stop them. He's trying to work out why. And Jesus' life is in his hands. Now look on the screen what Jesus says. Pilate asks him if he is the king of the Jews. Look at Jesus' reply. John 18, 36. It says, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. There's the good confession that Jesus made before Pilate. See, Pilate basically says to Jesus, what are you doing? These people want you dead, and I am giving you a way out. I'm giving you a chance to live. And Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. In other words, Jesus is saying, look, Pilate, there is more to this world than you can see. There is the kingdom of God. Blessed and only ruler, the King of kings, Lord of lords, who is immortal, who lives in unapproachable light. That is my kingdom, the kingdom you cannot see. But that is the kingdom I'm going to. That is the kingdom that is coming. And therefore, if that is my kingdom, do you really think that death is a problem for my future? So look over it again and notice that although this is a doxology, it's a word of praise to God, it's not just there to end the letter with a flourish. It's a very careful argument in which Paul is establishing a thoroughly Christian view of the world and giving Timothy motivation to keep going. Now, we've covered quite a lot of ground, so let me sum it up. Three things we've seen in 13 to 16. Firstly, the greatness and majesty of God, the most real thing in the universe, but it's invisible now. Secondly, what is invisible now is going to be made visible at Christ's return at the end. And then thirdly, now the Christian life is lived in the light of that future certainty as we follow Jesus 
as he made the good confession. And that is what Timothy must take hold of. He must keep believing that reality and not be seduced by a worldview which has its focus on the physical world which is coming to an end. Does that make sense? Someone give me a nod. <laughs> it's a wonderful combination, isn't it, of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God is at work. We are to, we are to work too. Timothy is to flee, follow, fight. But in the end, this is in God's hands. So let me give you a picture that I think holds all this together. Uh, and it's from Paddington 2, which is probably the best film ever made. Paddington, <laughs> Paddington 2, if you haven't seen it. Fantastic film. And there's a brilliant scene right towards the end. I'm going to try not to spoil the whole plot for you if you haven't seen it. But Paddington's on top of the train. And it's a classic sort of film scene, isn't it? When the hero's on top of the train. The train is moving to its destination. But Paddington's on top of the train and he's fighting and struggling with the villains and all sorts of things are being thrown at him. But all the time, the train is speeding on. Now, isn't that a great example? Isn't that a great picture of what Paul is saying here? That Timothy is to fight and struggle. That is the Christian life. And Paul knows that it's getting hard. All sorts of things are being thrown at him to push him off the train. He's got to flee, he's got to follow, he's got to fight, and it's getting harder. But what Paul is really saying to him is, as you struggle, as you live the Christian life, remember what it is that got you on the train in the first place. Remember the eternal life. Remember the destination and remember the sovereignty of God because all the time that struggle is going on, and you feel that you're going to fall off the roof of the train. The train is continuing on its journey. And so take hold of the promise again. Keep going. Keep struggling on. And you will get there. Not because you are getting there, but because the train is getting there. God's sovereignty, human responsibility. That is the Christian life. Well, all of that has set us up for what Paul now wants to say to the rich in 17 to 19. So what the rich must do and why in 17 to 19. Now, think about this. If that is the Christian life, then clearly the Christian life cannot be about material gain, can it? Clearly. You cannot serve God and money. To invest in this world is to back a loser. To be a Christian and to live for this kingdom is a contradiction in terms. To be a Christian is to be somebody who is living for a future kingdom, a better and glorious kingdom, which will be revealed at the end. One that is so rich and brilliant that it makes the best that this world has to offer pale in contrast. This is what Jesus believed when he stood before Pilate. And this is what every Christian, man, woman, boy and girl, must also believe as we follow Jesus, that our kingdom is not of this world. Now, in the light of that, you might have expected Paul to denounce the rich completely at this point. If all of that is true, wouldn't you have expected him to, to actually reject money as evil and to issue a kind of call for all Christians to be poor? But he doesn't. There's no sort of sense of bitterness here or envy or kind of berating the rich. No, he does something much better. What he actually does is he helps the rich 
to realize that they have a particular gift now, particular way of influencing the future, eternity, through their wealth. So what the rich must do. Notice how the great theme of the previous paragraph has carried straight into this one. Verse 17, command those who are rich in this present world. That's the key to how Christians are to think about wealth and money. They belong to this present world. That is why, as we saw last week, nothing reveals which kingdom you believe in more than your attitude to money. So what will it look like in practice to be rich in this present world and live for the next world? Well, he starts with attitude in verse 17. The rich are not to be arrogant. Now, why does being wealthy make you arrogant? Well, think about what money is. Money is liquid power. See, nobody apart from sort of giants and things in fairy tales love money for its own sake. The reason people love money is because of what money can do. It is liquid power. And money gives us two things. It gives us choice and it gives us control. It gives us those two things, choice and control. So when I was in the Cub Scouts, I, 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 this is when I first learned this lesson. I, I remember this. My father used to give me five pence for the tuck shop. Five pence. for the, Now, this was okay. Five pence was okay. Because you could get ten half-penny sweets for five pence. Or you, obviously, you could get five one-penny sweets. Or if you really were being sort of picky, you could get a couple of chocolate cigarettes. We had chocolate cigarettes in those days. Do you remember? And uh, you could then spend your, your afternoon pretending to smoke your chocolate cigarette as you... Things have changed a lot, haven't they? <laughs> but Philip, this is a true story, Philip had 50p a week. I mean, astronomical sum. <laughs> so there's me with my 5p, choosing, and then there's Philip. Philip with his 50p, it was unbelievable. And I noticed that Philip's wealth determined his attitude. So he would, we would all put our tuck into our little caps and we would kind of you know, go out the tuck shop, and he would swagger out of the tuck shop. I mean, literally swagger with his hat full of sweets. Then he'd spend the evening chewing his sweets and smoking his chocolate cigarettes long after the rest of us had finished ours. It's the arrogance of wealth, isn't it? Liquid power, control, and choice. Now, scale that up to adult life, and things don't change, do they? So instead of a hat full of sweets, you've got the portfolio of investments, A nice little nest egg in the bank, savings for a rainy day, a house that doesn't leak, one or two shiny cars that start first time, money put away for luxuries and emergencies. And it's easy to feel that you're in control, isn't it? It's easy to feel that you've achieved something. It's easy to feel arrogant if you're rich. So what is the antidote to this? Well, the antidote is to think carefully, to think very carefully about where your hope is, where your confidence is. He says, they must not put their hope in wealth, which is so uncertain, but to put their hope in God, who richly provides us with everything for our enjoyment. See, don't envy the wealth, because actually the wealth have a hard time trusting God. This is why Jesus said, fat camels can't go through the eye of the needle. He didn't say fat, did he? Just camels can't go through the eye of the needle. It is hard to trust God if you're wealthy. 
with your future because you will always fall back on the safety net of your wealth. Exactly what was discovered by the rich ruler in Luke 18, which we're going to be looking at in two weeks' time. But wealth seems so tangible, so safe. It gives me control. It gives me choice. If I get sick, I can, don't have to queue up at the NHS. I can pay for the treatment. If the house falls down, I can buy another house. But Paul is saying nothing is safe in this world. Treasure can be stolen. Stock markets can crash. Economies can bust. Even super yachts and mansions can be confiscated, can't they? But instead of trusting wealth or denouncing it on the other, Paul gives the wealthy another alternative. He gives them something to do with their wealth. And notice that simple command. Paul is not patronizing the wealth. Wealthy, he's not berating them. He's not offering some sort of socialist redistribution. He's just giving them a simple, specific command and obligation, something rich Christians are to do. They are to be generous givers. Verse 18, command them to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. Now, I want you just to notice how positive this is. Three parts to the command, and it builds into a lovely picture of open-handed, joyful liberality. Firstly, they are to do good. The wealthy can actually use their money, not just for themselves or for their own security, they can actually do good with it. That is an amazing thing, isn't it? Money is liquid power, and Paul says you've got the power to actually do good. Then, secondly, playing on the word rich, they are to become rich in good deeds. What Paul means by this is if you are rich, you have a particular privilege of converting your wealth into something more valuable. He wants them to use it for the gospel, for others, and this will enrich them spiritually. Something we saw when we looked at Acts 20, 35, a a year or so ago, we saw that Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. There are lots of reasons that Christians give, but one of them is actually good for us. It spiritually enriches us as we enrich others. And thirdly, he says there to be generous and willing to share. That is a habitual characteristic there to develop. Wealthy people are to develop the habit, the characteristic, the love of giving. The word share there is the Greek word koinonia, a word to do with fellowship and partnership. And so giving money to resource gospel work is a very practical way Christians can partner together. So I think Paul is saying something quite powerful and wonderful here. He's not berating the rich. He's not saying you can't be a wealthy Christian. There's no bitterness, no envy. He wants them simply to enjoy the privilege that they have to use their money for good. But there's an even greater reason he wants this. He wants this because it reveals what they believe about the world to come. This is the wine, verse 19. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age. So they may take hold of the life that is truly life. I think it's important that churches are financially self-supporting. We've seen hints of this in this letter. There's been hints that Paul wants this church to be doing better financially for the sake of the gospel. He wants all people to be saved. 
He's taught the preciousness of the witness of the local church where the widows are cared for properly. He's reprimanded them for not paying their full-time workers properly. So Paul wants this church's budget to be better than it is. He wants money to be channeled into gospel work. But in the end, I want you to notice in verse 19 that what he's really concerned about is their salvation. God wants the wealthy in this church to be saved. Now, of course, it's not by giving money that they get a place in heaven. But the only way they get a grip of what is truly life is by loosing their grip on this world. And I think this is very important for us to remember. This is very revealing. This is why when Andy, our treasurer, stands up and does that sort of flowchart of how our money is working as a church, it's not just a financial analysis. It is also an indicator of the spiritual health of the church. This is also why I genuinely believe the Building for Growth project has been spiritually good for us as a church. I've had conversations with unbelieving friends and neighbors who are amazed and baffled, quite frankly, at how we've raised this money. People are not used to this, are they? People are used to lottery funding. People are used to somebody else paying for buildings. But it's a great testimony to the gospel that we've been able to raise this money largely from ourselves. And won't it be a great testimony if we can push through and get it done in the midst of an economic downturn? Now, it wasn't that we weren't a generous church before, but raising an amount of money that seemed impossible has really forced us, hasn't it, as a church, to think about the gospel implications for our finances. We've had to think through how we can use material wealth to make others richer, and that's been good for us, that's been good for us. Well, how good has it been? Well, notice this treasure which we get to store up for eternity. What is this treasure? Is it actually mansions and yachts and jewelry and things like that? Does this mean that there will be haves and have-nots in the new creation? After all, Paul says, doesn't he, in verse 19, in this way they'll store up treasure for themselves. So in the end, is this actually a selfish thing? That you're giving money to get treasure for yourself in heaven? And what does that mean about the poor? If you're poor, does that mean that you don't have this opportunity and that there will be haves and have-nots in the new creation? It hardly seems fair, does it? Well, I don't think that's the right way of thinking. Look again at verse 19. And pay particular attention to the so that. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. See, how do the rich grasp hold of eternal life? There's only one way they can do it. You cannot serve two masters. The only way that the rich can grasp hold of eternal life is by letting go of this world. For those who are poor who want to be rich, in 6 to 10, that meant contentment. But for the rich, it means generosity. As they give their riches away for God's work, the future heavenly reality is becoming more treasured more real, more valuable. And that treasure is going to be revealed on the last day in all its glory when Jesus, is return, when Jesus returns. See, remember what Jesus said in Luke 12, 34. He said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be. If you lay up treasure in heaven, that's where your heart will be. That's what you'll look forward to. 
And he also says in Luke 9, 24, whoever wants to save this life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for mine's sake will save it. In other words, we have to choose. Are we putting our trust in money, in liquid power, or are we investing it in the new creation? We cannot do both at once. It's as simple as that. So here's another picture to grasp this point. It's the old monkey in the cookie jar. The monkey put his hand in the cookie jar to get hold of the cookie, but now his hand is gripped around the cookie. He can't get his hand out of the jar. What is he going to do? He only has one choice. He can let go of the cookie and live, or he can keep hold of the cookie and starve to death. Or if you want another one, it's the eagle that lands on the frozen moose. The moose's body is floating down the river. The eagle lands on it and eating away at the moose, but the waterfall is coming. And the eagle's thinking to himself, well, any time I want, I can let go and I can be free. But the longer he holds on, the more his claws get frozen into the moose and the waterfall is coming. And I think that's what verse 9 is saying to us. If we put our trust in this world, we think we've got hold of life. We've got hold of something worth having. But Paul says we can only grasp the next world if we let go of this world. We have to let go. We have to trust him and be free. And so in 20 to 21, we come to Paul's final words. Timothy, guard what has been trusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is called falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. Paul continues right to the end to address his friend and fellow worker, Timothy, directly and personally. In fact, verse 20 begins with a, a kind of emphatic, oh, oh, Timothy, which the NIV doesn't translate. And Paul uses his parting two sentences to restate the key message of the letter. Positively, he must guard the gospel. This is the most precious thing in all the world. The gospel of Jesus Christ that we thought about earlier, the one mediator between man and God, this glorious gospel has been entrusted to Paul, chapter 1, verse 11. It's now been entrusted to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus. And as he guards the gospel, he is to flee, he is to avoid the false teachers. And it's striking, isn't it? Even at the end of the letter, he's still warning Timothy of the danger for himself. Timothy cannot guard the gospel unless he avoids the danger of the false teachers leading him away from the gospel. And so I think as we come to the end of the letter, imagine yourself being Timothy. And I think you can imagine Paul kind of gripping your shoulders with his battle-scarred hands, looking into your eyes. And he says, oh, Timothy, listen carefully to this. Nothing in the world matters more than this, that you guard the gospel, that you flee, follow, and fight a little while longer because the train has not yet reached its destination. But you may remember that the final you at the end of verse 21 is plural. Grace be with you all. So as has been the case throughout the letter, Paul is also addressing these words to the church in Ephesus and indirectly, therefore, to us here at Moorlands. How do we guard the gospel? Well, in the way that he has explained throughout the letter, not by keeping it hidden, but by preaching and proclaiming it, allowing its implications to be worked out in the life of the ordinary local church. 
That's how God wants the truth to be made known in the household of God. How people will see the invisible reality of God in the here and now by people proclaiming the truth and living it out. And so we come back to where we began. The lesson of the letter, a fresh appreciation of the local church as a display of God's glory to the watching world. This is our privilege, our mission, to give the world a glimpse, a carpet sample of the world to come. And the challenge, how are we doing? Are we living in such a way that is worth noticing? Are we a community of hope to the wider community? Are we a church tingling and reverberating with the gospel? Well, this is what we do. This is our unique and precious responsibility to the world as the church of Christ. But we can only do that if each of us individually are gripped by the new creation. And we can only be gripped by the new creation if we have let go of this world. Which is why he ends on that note of grace. As he did on the beach at Miletus in Acts 20, when he said farewell to the Ephesian elders, warning them of trouble to come. Paul concludes by committing Timothy and the whole church to the sovereign grace of God. Because it's God in the end, as they put these words into practice, who will guard them as they guard the gospel until that great day when the crucified and risen Christ is revealed in all his glory. And so let's pray that that same grace will guard our hearts too. Let's pray. I'll give you a moment before I pray just to maybe underline or note something down that you particularly uh, want to think about in the week ahead. Perhaps a particular challenge or reminder or question that you want to chew on and then I'll lead us in prayer. But you, man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for all that we've received from this letter. We thank you for the ways that it has helped us to see the world through your eyes. We thank you for the great encouragement it's given us to stand firm, to fight for the truth, and to live out the truth in the midst of ordinary human life, to be the church in the world that you want us to be. We pray that by your grace we will live it out and obey it for your glory. And we particularly pray now that the glory and goodness that awaits us when Christ is revealed on the last day